chapter 17. I don't know about you guys, but some of these chapters kind of challenge me. And okay, what am I supposed to take away from all these visions? And if you feel that way while you're reading through these passages, um, then I totally relate with you. There's a lot to be taken in. There's a lot of big picture items. And for me, I have a hard time dealing with my little microcosm of the world. And yet God, in his wisdom, in his infinite wisdom, gives us just a little bit of insight into what it's like to be God and what he's got going behind the scenes that we don't know about. And no doubt, God's ways are far beyond our understanding. And yet, even when he gives me just a glimpse of what he's up to, I have to confess that it's very overwhelming to me. Because I don't think on, on major levels. I think about local community. I think about my own home. I think about how things are going on inside of me. And yet what God is showing us is that he is not only interested in our individual hearts and how whether or not they're focused on us or on other things, but he's also interested in all of the earth being set right. And, um, you know, if there's anything that you can take away from what's going on on TV right now with the news, uh, whether or not you can trust them and then, and then what they're feeding us and then what we're seeing in reality, uh, it, it causes there to be more questions than answers and yet what we know about Scripture is that it reveals to us the God of the universe who created it all and is going to ultimately, while he created it, he's also going to bring it to a close. And he's got a redemptive plan for each one of us if we're willing to receive it. And so uh, for the Spirit to speak and for us to understand this morning is what our prayer should be. So as we turn to Revelation chapter 17, I want to remind you that we are in the midst of a period of history called the Great Tribulation, a period of seven years where God is revealing what's going to happen for the Christ-rejecting world that is left on the earth after Christians are taken out. And when they are taken out, we will leave behind a witness, and for some of us, we will leave behind parts of our family. And so the point is, is that in Revelation uh, so far, we've seen kind of the unraveling of the world and as it's unraveling, God's taking his hand of power, his control, and he's letting go as the Christ-rejecting world wants God out of everything. We're seeing what happens when God is taken out of the fabric of society is he was actually the one holding it together. And when he lets go, not only does he let go of us, excuse me, not us, he's taken us up to heaven, he lets go of, of the world and its systems and all the laws that we kind of hate and at the same time, we need simple things like, I don't know, gravity. You know, we all hate gravity because it kind of does stuff to our skin and our bodies. And we, we, you know, you get taller to a certain age, young people, but then you start to shrink because of gravity on you and because of just the weight of everything. And yet, without gravity there, we float off into space and uh, we, we're not able to live our lives. And so just something as simple as that we take for granted, and yet without it there, it's an unknown. And so... All that to say in my rambling here is that God has judged the world in the Great Tribulation, and yet there's this group of people that are still around, and this group of people uh, exists and has um, followed the beast, if you will. And they have swallowed what has been forced down their throats. They have the number of the beast, the name of the beast on their heads and on their hands, and they've sacrificed and made worship towards this idol that's been placed in the holy temple 
and, and in the midst of that, God's going to reveal this great uh, adultery of people who call themselves faithful to God and yet have played the harlot. They've been, forgive me, uh, whoring around. And so spiritually, they have given themselves over to the worship of Satan. And, and in some ways, they know it. In some ways, they, they think they're in control of it. But in chapter 17, verse 1, it says that one of the seven angels from the previous chapter who had released the seven bowls of judgment on the Christ-rejecting world says that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, after dumping it out, came and talked with me. This is John speaking, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So this angel one of these judging angels comes down and says to John, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Now, we haven't been introduced to the harlot yet, but we'll see her in more graphic detail here shortly. But this harlot is going to be described, and it's the false church system that will still be present after the church has been shaken up in chapter 4 and 5, to heaven be with Jesus. There will still be a presence on earth that calls itself the church. And so many people won't even realize, because of the circles they run with, that the godly influence, the Holy Spirit-filled church on earth, is no longer present because it won't affect their lives at all. That godliness, being gone, will not make their lives any different. And so this false church system exercises great power even today. Um, but what it says there is that she rules over many people, or it says in there in chapter uh, 17, verse 1, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. She sits upon, she's over many waters. And in previous chapters, we know in Revelation that that symbology, many waters is many nations, many peoples, many tribes, tongues, and languages. And so this is a group of people that are ruled over by a religious system that is actually a religious system of harlotry, harlotry against God. And it says that the kings of the earth have committed or are committing today fornication with her. The word fornication means sexual contact outside of marriage in any form or fashion. But is it talking about physical fornication like we would think it, or is it talking about fornication spiritually? Now, what you want to think about, and I, I hope you understand this, that the inhabitants of the earth are and were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And if you look at me at Ephesians chapter 5 with me, uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians and talks about fornication for the believer Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. And he writes there to them, Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
He's not just telling us what we ought not to be doing. He says that the habit of the believer should be thankfulness, giving of thanks. And then he says, for this you know that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And so that's said pretty poignantly. But then if you turn to James chapter 4, James talks about adultery spiritually and he gives us very specific and i like james because he's in my opinion a man's man he gets straight to the point and i'll get there eventually james chapter 4 and verse uh, 4 james writes very clearly he says adulterers and adulteresses and he's not speaking of those who are cheating on their wives or their husbands he says this, he's, he's talking to those who are cheating on God. Did you know that you can commit adultery against God? He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is war with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, yearns jealously for us. God is jealous for us as believers. He doesn't just want us when we want Him. He wants us all the time. Forsaking all others. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like a wedding vow. I promise to give myself to you, forsaking all others. And so we think about that in the form of marriage, but he's talking about it in the sake of how you spiritually live. Are you cheating on God? Well, in the context of today's passage, this woman, this harlot that we're going to see is described as a harlot, a whore, a prostitute, call her what you want, but she is claiming to be a follower of God. And yet what we find is that she will be riding on the beast She's on the back of Satan, the scarlet dragon discussed in Revelation chapter 13. She's supposed to be someone's one and only. How many country songs have you heard like that? She's my one and only. But she's really giving herself away to possess wealth and prominence in exchange for religious ceremony. So many people believe that this is describing the Roman Catholic Church. And that might be the case in some ways. What I would say is that in every church, there are those who play the harlot. There are those who follow after. And it's going to describe this woman as the mother of all harlots. The mother of all those who would spiritually claim to be Jesus' one and only, and yet practically live like a harlot. I'm, I'm with Jesus on Sunday but the other days of the week, I'm, I'm with whoever's around, whatever's convenient, whatever feels good. And so he's speaking to John, getting this vision. He, he's pointing out the fact that, you know, Satan is going around like a roaring lamb, I heard described this morning, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may de devour. But what we think oftentimes is that if I follow Jesus then the roaring lion's going to be on my trail. But what we're going to find by the end of this chapter, by the way, is that this woman who rides on the dragon, spoiler alert, 
when the dragon is done with the woman, guess what he does to the woman? He's going to devour her and destroy her. Okay, I don't need you anymore. That's what men do with prostitutes, right? They use them. They throw them away. They don't care. They want what they can get, not what they can give like a good husband. And so my point is, is that this woman, this church that's around in the tribulation, who sees tribulation, it's not actually going to go for her as well as she thinks. And, and so we should pray for those who are seeking this outward appearance of godliness, and yet inwardly, they are really rejecting Christ wholeheartedly. And so, verse 3, it says there, So this angel carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw, so this is what John saw, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman, so we get this description of the, of the beast, and it's described like, if you look at Revelation chapter 13, described with ten horns, seven heads, and it's hard to understand because we're thinking any beast that looks like that has to be some weird-looking deal. It makes me think of Captain America movies, okay? I didn't wear this on purpose for that, but it makes me think of that. So who is the enemy in the Captain America movies? The organization, Hydra, this multi-headed beast that is seeking whom it may devour. And what happens when you cut off the heads? Another beast appears. Cut off, I forget what their phrase is, cut off so many heads and then several more appear. But the idea is, is that you can't kill it. All of its wisdom, all of its knowledge, all of its strategy is involved in what it's doing. And so this beast that she's riding on, she's riding on it thinking, I'm in control. I'm controlling the beast. I get what I want out of this relationship. But what we're going to find out by the end of the chapter is she's riding the beast until the beast kicks her off. It's like eight seconds. It's over for you. You think you're in control of the bull until it kicks you off, tries to stomp you. And so that being said, he goes on to say in verse 4, the woman described was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup. Think about this description. She's beautiful. Right? I mean, we, we think about adornment and how we want ladies to present themselves we think about the outward appearance as far as you go through the aisle at Walmart and the adornment. There's all this appearance of absolute beauty and just, you know, wearing jewels and, and having the right clothing and the right colors and the right fashion, you know. And, and in the meantime, what we find is beneath all that outward veneer, and I'll call it stucco, you know, stucco covers a lot of things. You look at some beautiful cars at car shows. What do they got on there? Bondo, okay? It's just caked on there, and then they shine it up. They wet sand it. They paint it. They put clear coat, and you're like, man, look at that awesome car. But you start it up, you let it see a few years, that Bondo starts to show. And then what you see is underneath, you see rust and corruption. And in this passage, it says that though she's adorned outwardly, absolutely, like the world would want a woman to be adorned, she has in her hand a golden cup 
full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. That's what she's drinking. She's drunk on abomination and fornication. And on her forehead, there is a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. By the way, if you're going to bury your mom, you would not want her headstone to say mother of harlots. She's the mom of prostitutes. That's the most shameful thing that you would... Somebody went and graffitied your mom's headstone and put it on there, uh, you would be very angry, right? And so this is what's on her head. This is her banner. She's the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman and look at what she was drunk on. The blood of the saints. She was involved in the tyranny, in the persecution, and the death of every saint in the tribulation. She is involved in the killing of the tribulation saints. She was in, in league with those who were the beast who was killing Christians. So outwardly, absolutely beautiful. But she's drinking abominations, and she's involved in fornication, She's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So I've already gone through some of these things, but in verse 4, she's wearing the rewards for her. So her outward adornment, by the way, it's awards. It's the reward. It's the, the, the booty, if you will, of all the work that she's done. In order to be a prostitute, she gets all these beautiful clothes. But a prostitute draws in her victim to destruction with her outward appearance, does she not? That's her billboard. And in Proverbs chapter 7, we read about this. Very graphically, mind you. Apparently, King Solomon was a little bit aware of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, Proverbs chapter 7, verse 10. It says there in verse 6, At the window of my house I looked through the lattice and saw among the simple I perceived among the youth a young man devoid of understanding passing along the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the dark, in the black. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart she was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and she kissed him. If he hadn't been there in the first place, that opportunity wouldn't have been there. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vow, so I came to meet you diligently to seek your face and I have found you. She's a religious woman. Did you notice that? She's made her peace offerings. She had gone to the temple and she had given to the Lord things. By the way, these are abominations to the Lord. She's crafty. She says all the right stuff. She's slightly religious, but not too religious. I confess to you that at one point, that's what I was looking for in a wife. I was unwittingly looking for a harlot, someone that was like Jesus, but wasn't all in. Someone that wouldn't really want to change my life or convict me of my sin. Somebody that would sit on the fence and kind of be both. 
You can't be both. You're, you're either for Christ or you're against him. And, and what it says here about this woman, she says in verse 16, I've spread my bed with tapestry. I've colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Keep saying that word love as if it means something to her. Doesn't that sound to me like, and maybe to you, that the word love gets twisted to mean something that it's not really? You know, it's not just night at the Roxbury. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. You know, but it's like, what is love? All you need is love. Da, 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 da. You know, the, it, love doesn't mean usually what people sing about. Because love is hard. And it's not a feeling. And it's not an emotion. It is a stinking choice. And it's a wonderful choice. But it's a hard choice to live out. Jesus Christ is the only one that I've ever seen 100% live out love. And that love that he lived out cost him everything. Forsaking all others. It even cost his father, by the way. My father, why have you forsaken me, your son? He took this, the weight of the, the entire world's sin upon himself and it killed him. By the way, true love will kill you. You will not be yourself anymore. You will be married to a person and you'll have to help them and do what they do and you'll have to die to your own wants and needs. It's a wonderful thing because in that, Christ is seen. That's why marriage is undefiled. It's pure before the Lord. Hebrews 13 talks about marriage being this, this blessing of an act. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, by the way, the world doesn't see it anymore as a beautiful thing because you have to give instead of just get. Your gratification costs you. And so uh, through the pen of this, this proverb writer, we see uh, at the same time, verse 17, I perfume my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. Oh. All that leads up to, because my husband isn't home, come on in. Good grief, but he's already drunk on all the smells and on all the things that she said and all the flattery. And, and so he's, he's left his abode. He's gone to dark places. It, it's a slow fade. And then before he knows it, he's at the door. He can already smell the aromas and she's dressed like a harlot. And at the same time, she's not, he's not thinking, oh, this is going to be against somebody else. And then she throws in at the end, right before he's been hooked. Oh, by the way, my husband's not home, so you don't have to worry about him. And then, and then he's already in. He's already made the choice. He, backing away is harder now, right? And so she throws out that little nugget. He's gone on a long journey. Oh, okay, then I'm good. He's taken a bag of money with him and we and we'll come home on the appointed day. I know when he's coming back, we're good. So all of this, if you're not uncomfortable with this language, then, then you need the Lord to change your heart because this should make you feel uncomfortable. And I'm lingering on it longer to let you feel uncomfortable. You should feel uncomfortable. 
And so all that to say, this woman described in Revelation chapter 17, she is a harlot. And she doesn't come out and say, hey, I'm a prostitute. She comes out and says, hey, I've made my offerings. Hey, I've got good stuff for you. Hey, don't worry, my husband's not around. And all of these things lead up to men and women giving themselves over to these false worship systems. And in the meantime, there is no salvation there. There's only death and destruction and misery. And so what's in her cup? Abomination, things that cause disgust and hatred. And there's another passage in Proverbs 6. But before we go there, I don't want to just linger on all the stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable. Although uncomfort is good, that's called conviction. I want us to look at what Paul wrote to Timothy about how we should be adorned. Let's not talk all about how we're not to be adorned in fornication and lust and the fleshly things of this earth. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 8, it's a passage to women in the church. But I want the application, I want you to think about this whether you're a woman or a man. How we are to be adorned for our husband who is Christ. He says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, and in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, which, by the way, describes this harlot, right? But then that which is proper for a woman professing godliness with good works. Adorn yourself with the works of your hands. And if you read Proverbs chapter 31, that's the same calling. It's not just for women, it's for the bride of Christ. Adorn yourself with works that, that are a billboard for godliness. What's on her head? She's got this banner that says, Mystery Babylon the Great. And the mother of harlots. And in John's day, in the Roman cities and in the, this empire, if you wanted to know whether someone was a harlot, they wore their name on their forehead because they wanted their customers to feel like they could be on a first-name basis. And so that was part of it. And it didn't have to be you know, like that you didn't know them to make you feel more comfortable about this abomination. But what gets her high? Revelation chapter 17 the death of true saints. She's drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Anyone who is actually godly, they hate. And so, let's go on. Uh, but before we get there, I have a, a little excerpt from a commentary. I read David Guzik and I listen to him teach. He's a, a very good Bible teacher if you're looking for somebody to listen to throughout the week. But concerning religious Babylon or the false worship system, this is what he said. As a religious system, Babylon came into being long before Christianity. And if you remember in Revelation, or excuse me, in Genesis, you have the Tower of Babel, and it was built up, and it was a place of worship, not to get to heaven. It's not like Led Zeppelin, the stairway to heaven. It was actually a worship place unto the heavens. It was a place to worship the heavens themselves, you know, two worship systems. You either worship the creator or you worship the creation. And they were going to worship the creation. And so according to religious history and legend, the Babylonian religion was founded by the wife of Nimrod. You'll notice not many people name their kids Nimrod anymore. 
but Nimrod was a descendant of Noah after the flood. He was, and his wife's name was Semiramis. She was a high priestess of idol worship, and she gave birth, listen, listen to this, to a son who she claimed was conceived miraculously. The son named Tammuz was considered a savior. Many ancient artifacts remain with the familiar motif of the mother Semiramis holding the savior infant Tammuz, which predate Christianity. So Satan knows the redemption plan, by the way. He knows what God's going to do through bringing a miraculous virgin birth. And then he also knows that there's going to be a savior. That's why he's trying to kill the Jews. Because the promise was this, the Messiah would come through the Jewish line, through Shem, the Semites, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the descendants of Noah, the Shemites, the Semites, anti-Semitic, right? It's a satanic plan to shut off the redemption plan. But in the meantime, he not only is trying to shut it off, he's also trying to make a counterfeit. And so this predates Christianity, and it was also that Tammuz was killed by a wild beast and then huh, miraculously brought back to life. Sound familiar? So Satan doesn't, he doesn't have original schemes, by the way. He is a counterfeit man. He sees what's real, and he tries to pervert it and make it his own and use it for his own benefit. And so um, Baal was the local Canaanite name for the Babylonian Tammuz. And Baal worship was still prominent in the days of the Canaanites when the Israelites came in. So all that to say, hopefully I haven't bored you, but I thought that was interesting history because since Babel, since Babylon began, there's been a false religious system set up all the way through the ages. And if you study church history, it is horrific. Even in the Christian line, the Crusades, uh, the Roman Catholic traditions, uh, all of those things, there's always been a hint of religious harlotry, religious mixing with other religions. And so all that to say, there is only one name given among men from heaven, by which mankind can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Him only. We don't need a priest to stand between us and the man. We don't need a system built on traditions and some man ordering out edicts. But I would submit to you that in every Christian church, this is a temptation to have false religious systems and traditions and rules and regulations and ideas and ideologies and philosophies that have nothing to do with Jesus and actually can draw us away from him and pervert the, the straight way. The simplicity of Jesus is hated because it's so simple. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. And so verse 7 and 8, as we get back to the text, says, the angel said to me, why did you marvel when you saw this? And I would submit to you, he marveled because of the nasty he just witnessed. But he, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. The marveling means to be astonished or filled with wonder. Maybe he's surprised that all the false religion that was going on in his day to have his eyes open to see it for what it really was. 
I, I don't know, it doesn't say here, but it goes on to say, he says, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition or destruction. Now, the son of perdition is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. This, this beast, this son of perdition is described and it's described using language that, that essentially points us to the destruction of Satan. 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, first, wait. I don't know my own reference. Um, it's hard to read up there. Wasn't it there? No, I'm looking at Thessalonians. I got ahead of myself. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So that description there is the son of perdition, and it's also the one described in the previous verses we just read in verse 8. So he says, let me show you the mystery of Babylon the Great. But in 1 Timothy, before we get to the mystery of this false worship system, I want to point out the, the contradictory and the opposite, the opposition of great is the mystery of godliness. You know, he's going to say great is the mystery of ungodliness. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 14, here's what it says. Paul writes, these things I write to you, Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery. By the way, a mystery is not something that's hidden that you can't seek out. A mystery is something that can be solved. God gives us things many times in a mystery because for those who don't really care, it'll be a mystery to them. But to those who want to know more, they'll dig in. So he says, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he describes the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world, and he was received up in glory. This is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. And as he describes the mystery of great Babylon, he says, this is he who was, who was, excuse me, the, the beast, verse, 18, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and will come and will ascend not to heaven, but out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those names who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And so the mystery of godliness is great, but in contrast, great is the mystery of the woman and the beast who carries her. 
Now, it's a mere counterfeit of the truth. She's got power, but it's power that she's been given from the beast. The mystery is more about the beast, though. Did you notice that? I'm going to show you the mystery of the, the woman and the beast, and then all of the description is about the beast, then the woman who rides it. So the beast, who was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit, pit will go to destruction, Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. But as we move on to verse 9, what we're going to find out it's not just about this woman, it's about the system and the nations who have followed her. So described here in verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. And I looked up what the heck that phrase means. And in the New Living Translation, it says, this, what I'm getting ready to tell you, calls for a mind with understanding. And so, Lord, please help us to have understanding as we read this. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. So he's describing the beast, but the beast is not a literal beast. The beast is a system, and it is Satan and his plan. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And I believe these describe seven nations over whom she has authority. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one still is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time, and the beast that was and is not is himself also going to be the eighth. And he will be of the seven as a, and is going to destruction. I don't know about you guys, but that makes my head spin. But the description very much so paralyzes. <laughs> it, it parallels what goes on in Daniel chapter 7 when we see the kingdoms of the earth played out through these different kingdoms, starting with Babylon, leading to Medo-Persia, leading to Greece, leading to Rome. This is the world history before it happened in Daniel 7. And then it continues on in, in Revelation chapter 17. But what he's describing here is these seven kingdoms that will have seven kings. And then he describes more in verse 12, the ten horns. So he's describing the seven heads. And this is the, where the woman has authority. He describes seven mountains. Many believe that he's talking about Rome here because there are seven hills in Rome that, they're found, that Rome is founded on. I don't necessarily agree with that because it's seven mountains, not hills. We might call what we have mountains, but really what we have are kind of foothills and the Ozarks, yet we know that real mountains are way taller in the Rockies. And so it, maybe it's a point of contention, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. But what he says is on these seven mountains are seven rulers. And these seven rulers, five kings have already died. They've lived, and then they've died, as rulers always do. But one, at John's day, still existed, and the other one that he's describing in the seven has not yet come. But one to come will be an eighth, and he will be of the seven. Well, how's that possible? How can you have one out of seven and then make a total of eight? It's bad math. Well, there will rise one out of the seven who will be a ruler that will be of the same mind. He'll be of the same satanic influence of these seven kingdoms described. He'll be of the same spirit as these other kingdoms. These are kingdoms of the world, not ruled by Christ, but ruled by 
the spirit of Antichrist. But it says here, no matter what he does, he will be destroyed. He will be a son of perdition. So then he goes on in verse 12 to describe the ten horns. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. In other words, they're not in control right now, but they receive authority for one hour, one segment of time as kings with the beast. They get their authority from the beast. They are unified. This will be one world government. They'll all be in unity. They will not be on opposite sides of the political spectrum. They will wholeheartedly agreed, agree, which sounds awesome, except when you figure out their influence is Satan. They're all unified. We all have unity. Let there be peace on earth. Kumbaya, all the rest. But it will be inspired by Satan. Unity at any cost is not necessarily the greatest banner to fall under. Let there be peace on earth, but let it begin with Jesus, not me, not any other man. But here's what he says. They will be of one mind. They will, and at, at, at just the right time, they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Tell me the last basketball team that you've seen locally that picked their, uh, their mascot to be a lamb. Anybody? This isn't just going to be any lamb. This will be Lambo. <laughs> this will be a roaring lamb. And what it says is that all these 10 nations, by the way, we think 10 and we think like solid, right? The number 10 is like this. I don't know about you guys, but I think if, if I have 10 of something, that's the right number. There's enough. But 10 against one. If you had odds and you were a gambling person and you had odds 10 to one that you would win the bet, many of us would be like, well, that's a no brainer. That's an investment, right? I had stock and it said 10 to 1 you're going to gain on your investment for every dollar you put in you'll get 10 back that's a good bet right especially if the fight is against a lamb the most defenseless creature on earth but what it says here is that the lamb overcomes them they think they got the odds they think they got the kings of the worlds they're finally going to do what napoleon was trying to do they're going to finally do what Alexander the Great was trying to do. They're going to set up a kingdom and be a king over the entire world. And then at just the right time, when they tried this, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. He comes with his army. He comes on the clouds. He comes with ten thousands of his saints, and it says that those saints that are with him are called chosen. We, the saints, are the chosen before the foundation of the earth. He chose you and I, and they will be called faithful. <laughs> I don't know about you, but most days, if somebody called me faithful, I'd have to back up and go, uh-uh, I'm not faithful when I'm really right in my mind and I'm humble. Uh, but we'll be called faithful because we have trusted the faithful one. But we will come with him, and we are going to kick some worldly butt. Verse 15. Uh, uh, and excuse me, before I go there, 
their authority comes from Satan. They will make war with the Lamb, but they will lose. But if you look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 36 through 45, if you look in there, it's, it's kind of interesting because Daniel, in the prophecy, I'll give you, like, read it later on your own, but he describes this, this statue in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar gives him. And there's a gold head that describes Babylon. There's this, this chest, and, and then there's this waist, and then the legs. And the, basically, there's a split kingdom. But at the end of the split kingdom, I believe there's going to be a revived Roman-type empire. And we've seen inklings of it, by the way. If you look on the Euro coinage, you'll actually see a woman riding a beast. Uh, in some of the statues in the EU, back when they were trying to get the nations together and do the, the Euro coins, the EU was this, this na- it's, it's like rumblings of a kingdom trying to start up with many nations being a part of it. Uh, but all that to say, in Daniel chapter 2, it was prophesied about, because then he goes on to describe that the kingdom will become ten toes, with ten rulers leading up to the one ruler will be the antichrist so all that to be said uh, god knows what's going to take place and he's not surprised by any of it his plan will be fulfilled so verse 15 as we close then he said to me the waters remember this describes the people we saw this in verse 2 which you saw where the harlot sits are people's multitudes nations and tongues and the ten horns which you saw on the beast These will hate the harlot. They will make her desolate and naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their mind and hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Uh, Something similar already happened. If you know anything about history, Caesar Nero was the king at the time of, of, of Paul the Apostle. He was the fifth emperor of Rome. He was call, he called the beast by the early church, by the way. At first, he was pretty reasonable, easy to deal with. He was a good politician, like any of them. Until the Apostle Paul testified before him. The Apostle Paul, like his whole life's work was leading up to going and testifying and sharing the gospel before Caesar Nero. But the funniest thing happened after he shared the gospel with Caesar. Uh, all of a sudden, Nero spiraled out of control and he began persecuting the Christians with vengeance. It's like he went insane in the membrane. He became a beast. Uh, the same thing happened, by the way, to Daniel. Daniel shared the visions and explained them and told uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, if you do not humble yourself before the God of heaven, you will become like an animal. And what did he do? He, in pride, put himself against God and said, look at this kingdom that I have built. And at that time, he became like an animal, like a beast. But Caesar Nero burned down a good portion of Rome and then blamed the Christians. Another example, he made it a practice to impale Christians on poles, cover them in oil, light them on fire, and yell like a madman while riding his chariot naked all night long. That's the depths of the demonic oppression of Satan. I believe that this same spirit that possessed Nero 
will one day possess the Antichrist. And so, as we close with verse 15 through 18, this woman seems to be in control. She's on the beast, right? She's riding the beast. She's got the reins. She's over all the people and the nations of the earth. Do you remember Jesus was tempted with this same opportunity? Satan took him to the wilderness after fasting 40 days. He said, try to turn this bread into stone. And then he said, hey, you want to be great among men? Make yourself known. And so he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. He said, jump off for the scriptures say that God won't allow you to dash your foot against a stone. He'll send his holy angels to take charge over you. And then of all the things he said, he took him to a great mountain. And he says, look, all the kingdoms of the world, if you will bow down to me, I will give you leadership over all these nations. You'll have authority and power and prominence and everything the world has to offer. And Satan rejected it. I know why he rejected it, because he was not, he was going to be given the kingdom. He was going to humble himself and then be exalted. He was going to die for the sins of the world. He was going to prepare his bride for the bride for the wedding feast. But I also know another thing. Jesus knows something about Satan that you and I don't. That Satan promises things he can't give. And that when he promises them, he's promising them not for your benefit, but for his own. Because Satan loves Satan. And so notice what he does with this harlot. Couldn't get the bride, he'll get the harlot instead. And when he's done with the harlot, what does he do? He devours her. He destroys her. When they no longer need the harlot for their political, their power, the authority gain, he kills her. He absolutely destroys her. So I want to point out this truth that I'm just now realizing. If you serve Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. If you serve Satan, you're going to ultimately be destroyed. And it's not by heaven, by the way. You're going to be destroyed by your master. Slave owners don't care about their slaves. They don't. Satan doesn't care about his minions. And so Mystery Babylon the Great will be destroyed by the one that claimed to love her. Mystery Babylon, the false religious system will be destroyed by Satan himself. <clears throat> and so, Mystery Babylon is seen in the corrupt church described also in Revelation chapter 2. And what it says there in the church of Thyatira is that for those who will remain faithful, even though they lived in a wicked religious system, many people say, oh, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites there. <laughs> go anyway, serve Jesus, he'll sort it out. That's what, that's what Scripture says. Those who are truly the Lord's in this group, they'll be taken up by the rapture. That's what Jesus told them. Those who are in bed with the teachings, he says in Revelation 2 of Jezebel, will see the great tribulation. They won't be caught up as the bride of Christ. They'll suffer the tribulation. Many believe that this mystery Babylon is the church in Rome, but I say that it's any church where there are those who follow the harlot instead of Jesus. And Je Jesus will separate uh, the wheat from the chaff. So, some questions as we close. I don't want this to be about the big system. We, all, we learned about the future. 
We learned about how God's going to set it right. But how can we apply this to our lives? So the questions I want you to think about, things to consider. Am I a part of the false religious system that's ultimately going to be torn down? Am I a Christian in name only, but drunk on what the world offers instead of filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 5 talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the word there, filled with, actually means drunk with. So being drunk in the Spirit is actually encouraged. Or have I bought into the world's values, the world's ethics, the world's philosophies, the world's stuff? Am I part of the false religious system? Am I part of the problem that, or, or, or am I part of this system that's going to be torn down? Or am I active in the kingdom of God and following Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit? Am I trusting in his ways rather than pandering to the world or, or being pacified by them? Am I focused on pleasing Jesus, living to glorify him, longing to be one day with him where he is now? Is that my goal? Or is my goal to be comfortable and to live for the world until I go home? I would submit to you that if your goal is to be comfortable and live in what this world has to offer, uh, you're going to be in the place of this harlot. In what ways am I personally being tempted to compromise and follow the ways of the world today? What ways are you personally being tempted to compromise and follow the ways of the world instead of wholeheartedly following the way of Jesus? Satan doesn't come along and say, hey, sin abounds here, come on. What he says is, that, that thing really doesn't matter. This thing that you're doing is, you could still do this and be a Christian. How far can you go, right? People ask me that all the time. Can I still do this and be a Christian? My, my answer is always, that's the wrong question, buddy. That, that, don't ask that question. I've been there. If you're asking that question, you need to not do that. I'm just going to throw that out there. And then what are some ways that I can maintain an eternal focus and serve the, serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ and live for his kingdom right now? Uh, the prescription to avoiding worldliness is living for godliness. In what ways can you personally, can I personally live for Christ now and avoid all the temptations altogether? So Father, um, you know, rather than us uh, thinking about all the people and the, the, the systems that are set up that are false worship, would you please sort out our hearts that are deceitfully wicked and divided I just confess to you, Lord, that many times my heart is divided and I'm not really asking you to search it to see if there be any wicked or idolatrous or uh, harlotrous ways within me. Have I played the harlot? Have we played the harlot? Are, are we living for you sometimes and giving the world its due or are we wholeheartedly living, forsaking all others, trusting that your ways are perfect, even though we may not get the things the world offers. Father, search our hearts. Help us to fix ourselves firmly upon your solid foundation, and we'll give you the glory. Help us to pray for those who we see in our lives that are divided, whether it's ourselves, those that we live with, uh, those that we work with. Sometimes it's harder to live among those who claim to be and are not 
And so, Father, we're not called to judge them. We're called to inspect the fruit and then live wholeheartedly. If there's people in our lives that are causing us to go, man, they really don't live for Christ, help us to look at our own lives in that same mirror and go, is that thing that irritates me so much, is that in me? Am I seeing what the thing that I'm not even conquering and just being mad about it in them because I haven't dealt with it myself? Father, help us to get our eyes on you. Help us to let you change us. Help us to not play the harlot, but to be the unblemished, spotless uh, bride of Christ, ready for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.